0: All right. Welcome back to the show, everybody. My name is Glenn McDorman, and this is Atos, your fungal Noir Speculative Fiction Book Club Podcast by Clay Temple Media. So this month, we're going to be talking about the book Finch by Jeff Vandermeer. This was originally published in 2009. Finch came in second on our Patreon poll, though it had previously failed to make it past the post. I'd have to say, I was very glad to see it make it this time. This is a book that I have read before. In fact, I I still actually have discovered that I have tucked into it the receipt from a jiffy lube in Knoxville, Tennessee in 2010, because you should only read weird fiction when you're waiting to get your oil changed. I mean, that's probably solid advice, actually. But otherwise, I have to say, I've not really read all that much of, of Vandermeer's work. I know that I had picked this book up when it was brand new at the Tattered Cover in Denver, and this must have been right before I was moving to Knoxville from Denver. And this is something I would have done because I had also read his collection of related novellas, which is called City of Saints and Madmen, And in fact, as I'm recording this, we've actually just started putting those novellas on the ballots for Elder Sign, our weird fiction podcast, which means that as you are listening to this, we've probably done one or two of them uh, by now. So you can go check those out as well. But all right, I think that is probably enough preamble, especially with the lengthy news segment here. So let's just get into it. Let's go check out Finch. All right. So Finch takes place entirely in a secondary world. Uh, That is to say that it takes place in a setting that Vandermeer has invented. And so what that means is that we're going to have to spend some time on the setting before we get into the characters and the plot of the book. Now, this is how we always do this here on ATOS, but in this case, it's a little bit more complicated than that. The setting is a city, it's a city called Ambergris, but Finch is not the only book set in Ambergris. In fact, it's it's the last book set there. City of Saints and Madmen, that novella collection I, I just mentioned a few minutes ago, that's the first book in the Ambergris series. And then in between that and Finch, there is Shriek and afterward. These books are not a trilogy, though there are some connections uh, uh, among them, but we can we can deal with this book all on its own, which is what we're going to do, but that requires the caveat here that I'm only going to talk about the speculative setting as we see it in this book. I, I won't use any knowledge that I have from City of Saints and Mad Men, and since I haven't actually read Shriek and Afterward, uh, that one won't be a challenge for me, though I am now really interested in going and checking that one out, I will say. All right, so caveat out of the way, let's talk about Amigris. Ambergris is a totally weird setting, uh, by which I mean that it operates on different principles from a fantasy or a science fiction setting. And this is something that we can talk more about in the, the themes segment. But for now, what I mean by this is that it is a setting that doesn't necessarily make a whole lot of sense. It is not an extension of our world in the way that Star Trek or even Revelation Space are. And it's not a wholly separate speculative world made up entirely of its own languages and histories akin to you know, the Wheel of Time or other high fantasies. Instead, what we have here is a world that is a hodgepodge of stuff from our own world, but all kind of jumbled together in a way that really can create some underlying intellectual discomfort. Uh, though, in a good way, of course. I really like this book. I should have been clear about that from the start, I suppose. But here are the particulars Embergris is a city state in a made up land. When we encounter Ambergris in Finch, I have to say it feels very much like an American city around 1950, and the history of the place supports that. Ambergris was founded by settlers from across an ocean that lies to the east. It's not clear when that was, but it seems like it was a few centuries ago. And while this very well could be the story of Boston or New York or Philadelphia, Vandermeer does not tell us where these settlers came from, but he also doesn't show us either. Characters in this story have names that are clearly European, mostly English, German, or Dutch, but it is not clear at all that England, Germany, or the Netherlands exist in this world. In fact, I'm certain they don't. Similarly, the political communities that neighbor Amigris also have a hodgepodge of names from our own world, but that don't really necessarily belong together. There are two nearby city-states named Stockton and Morrow, and these clearly share a history with ambergris as settlements from someplace across the ocean where people speak English but don't live in England because there is no such place as England in this world. But then there is what's called the Caliph's Empire. Caliph, of course, is a word that denotes the ruler of the political community of all Muslims. It was a title used during the the Middle Ages. It's an Arabic word that means successor, or at least denotes successor. Uh, We don't have to get into the particulars there, but my wife is a historian of this period, so I want to be careful here. Uh, But it's an Arabic word that more or less means successor, because the origins of the title is that the first caliphs were the successors to Muhammad, uh, who was both the, the political and religious leader of all Muslims. And so, does that then mean that off to the west of Ambergris, there's an empire of Arabic-speaking Muslims? Well, that's also not entirely clear, but I'm going to say, probably not. So what we have here, then, is a number of words and cultures that have been copied from our world, transported to Vandermeer's speculative setting, stripped of their particulars and of their contexts, and then jumbled up— And it is really jarring. It's really uncomfortable, but it is also weird in the best sense of weird fiction. This is a great move that Vandermeer makes here in creating this setting. Okay, so a little bit more about the setting and the setup before we can actually go meet our protagonist and follow him around on his adventure. Ambergris is a city that feels very much like Los Angeles circa 1950, but it also feels very much like an Italian city-state circa 1450, another jarring juxtaposition that is just awesome. But what I mean by this is that Amigris is a city with a state. It has control of territory and is its own independent institution. And it may even have something of an empire comprised of colonies or conquests in the form of uh, other small communities adjacent to water. It's a, a commercial empire, I guess. Though I should say that this is not entirely clear in the text. But in either case, Ambergris, in the immediate backstory of Finch, is a city without a civil government. It is a city that is run by two commercial interests, two private businesses, maybe we should say, private businesses that manufacture and trade and sell, and also are in dire competition with each other. Before the start of the novel, these two companies have been engaged in an all-out civil war with each other. They've been raising private armies, complete with tanks. They've been trying to take complete control of the the city and also the commercial empire. And citizens aren't really citizens anymore. They've just become partisans of one of these two companies. Uh, We'll have more on that later, I assure you. But neither side wins this war. And as a result of this civil strife and internal division, Emigres is taken over by a foreign power— And this is where the setting really gets weird, because that foreign power is mushroom people. So here's the deal with that. When the settlers who founded Ambergris showed up, this area was not uninhabited. There was a community of mushroom people who we will from now on call gray caps, because that's what the humans of Ambergris call them, though that's meant to be a racist and derogatory term. The humans, the the future Ambergrisians, attempted to commit a genocide, and they very nearly succeeded. And while they didn't kill all the gray caps, they did drive them underground, and, and I mean literally underground here, uh, where they became something like fairies in the folklore of, of Ambergris. That is to say, until now, when they have returned with a vengeance. And when the book begins, we are six years into the Grey Cap occupation of Ambergris, and the city is much changed. The population is vastly decreased. Uh, people have been killed. People have fled. Many others are imprisoned in concentration camps outside of the city. What resistance there was, and there was resistance, but what there was has been destroyed through some kind of fungal WMD, something weird that's created a a kind of barrier around an entire district of the city. The cityscape is altered. There had already been a lot of destruction during the Civil War, then again during the Rising, and now during the Occupation, the Grey Caps have been leveling buildings and replacing them with giant mushrooms, essentially. The waterways have also been changed, and many of the remaining buildings are flooded in their lower levels. Out in the bay, the Grey Caps are constructing two towers for for some unknown purpose that we will return to in just a moment. That's going to be important for the plot here. But there are still humans here in the city, and the Grey Caps need to keep them under control. And one of their many tools for doing that is a human police force. And that is where John Finch, our protagonist and also title character, comes into the story. He wasn't a detective before The Rising, but the gray caps have made him one. And so this is going to be a detective story, something that I think you know by now I never get tired of. And in this case, it is a third-person account written more in the style of Mickey Spillane than the style of, of Dashiell Hammett or, or Raymond Chandler. And we're going to talk more about that later as well. The inciting incident is the discovery of a pair of corpses in an apartment that doesn't belong to either of the, the dead people here. What makes this murder investigation worth telling a story about is that one of the corpses is a human and the other is a gray cap. Killing a gray cap, by the way, not an easy task. Bullets pass right through them. Uh, They're very tough to cut in half. Uh, The human corpse here has a piece of paper in his hand with a strange symbol and a phrase in Latin. The phrase is Bellum Omnium Contra Omnis. We're going to talk about where that phrase is from and also what it implies, what it means for the themes. Uh, We'll do that in our next segment, the themes segment. But it is a simple phrase that is easily translated even if you don't know Latin. But Finch sees this really just as gibberish, which suggests to me that this world also doesn't have Latin. But somehow, someone from this world has encountered our world, or at least encountered another world that does have Latin. Now, the plot of the book is fairly complicated because that's always how it is with detective plots. But also, I usually think that with detective novels, the plot itself doesn't really matter all that much. We're here for setting and mood and writing. We want to explore this urban setting like it's a fantasy world. And we want good dialogue. We want observations about the world. And we get a lot of that. We get all of that in this book. But you know by now that that is all stuff I like to talk about in other segments. So here, I'm gonna just rush through the actual recap part of the recap segment so we can get to the really juicy bits. Finch does some detecting, but he has a lot of obstacles, including his own bosses, the Grey Caps, who clearly have some ideas about what's happened here, but do not want to give Finch the information that they have because it would give away something secret and something important. And eventually, it's gonna turn out that the Resistance wasn't destroyed as everyone has thought, but in fact, just relocated to another dimension. And in fact, it turns out that this is a story that really depends on other dimensions. That is actually where the gray caps originally came from. They have some sort of technology that allows them to travel through dimensions, but they got lost and stranded here centuries ago. And now they are busy trying to open up a really big door to their home dimension, but not to go home, as you would expect, because it turns out they like it here. And what they want to do is bring more Greycaps here to Amigris by building these towers in the bay. The Resistance knows all about this and also has developed some ability to travel through these dimensional doorways. So they want to come back to Amigris with renewed strength, and they're going to use the Greycaps towers against them. But to do that, they need something from this human corpse at the murder scene. And the only person who can go there is Finch. And that means they need Finch. The plan does not work, of course, and along the way, Finch loses his girlfriend, he has to kill his own best friend, he gets tortured by a human who's working for the Grey Caps, and he also has to tangle with other humans who are operatives of a neighboring city-state, there's some international intrigue going on here as well. But in the end, the backup plan works and the resistance returns and the book ends with Finch watching them storm through the, the gate, through the, the towers uh, in the bay, uh, probably to defeat the Grey Caps, But that is not something that we actually get to see before the book closes. So who knows? And maybe Vandermeer will write a continuation of this story someday and we can check in on it. So, all right, let's just move into our next segment and talk about some themes and motifs. There are three big topics that I want to look at here. The, the last of them will be looking at the way that Vandermeer constructs this jarring and anachronic setting here and, and how it differs from the way that we get secondary world settings in fantasy and science fiction. The, the second that I'm going to talk about is going to be about treason and patriotism and also political systems, maybe more generally. But first, I want to look at how Vandermeer envisions this military occupation of Ambergris by the Greycaps. How do they hold power? How do they maintain that power? How does their occupation alter Ambergrisian society? Now, this is a topic that especially interests me as I have done my research as a historian on the fall of the Roman Empire, but in particular on what that experience was like for cities that were occupied by enemy armies. And I should note that I came up with that research agenda only really a few months after reading this book. And in fact, it was something that was supposed to be on my mind while I was reading this book over a, a summer vacation. Uh, I don't remember there being any direct link, but there might have been a subconscious link here. So maybe I should send Jeff Vandermeer a thank you note. Well, the initial key to the gray Cap occupation was a military victory, a resounding military victory, which they owe to several factors. First, of course, there's the 20-year civil war in Ambergris, which left the city weakened, divided, and distracted. No one noticed the clear signs that the rising was imminent until it was too late. Second, they have some crazy fungal weapons that totally caught the humans of Ambergris by surprise. But the third factor here is their control of information— because we later find out that these weapons aren't really a technological advantage, but the graycaps were able to make them appear as if they were. And they were also able to make it appear that there are far more gray caps than there actually are because they live underground and because they can move through dimensions, they could make themselves move much more quickly and therefore appear to be in more places at once. And information control continues to be a major factor in the success of this occupation. And there is one constant thorn in their side— The broadcast from the mysterious figurehead of the Resistance, whom they cannot capture and cannot even locate. But of course, there are two directions to the flow of information, and it is not just an issue of limiting what humans know about the Grey Caps, it is also an issue of knowing everything about the humans. And here, the Grey Caps excel at creating a surveillance state. For one, they, they have cameras everywhere. We'll get some more details about that in just a moment. But they also have a genuinely weird technology that allows them to experience the memories of dead people. And this is a major element in the plot of the investigation, by the way. Now, this in itself is useful, but it is also often difficult to employ. And so where this seems to be more useful is as a threat that if a person isn't answering questions, there's not really any reason not to just kill them and eat their memories. All of these are important tools for occupiers, but the most important tactic that the Grey Caps employ, and and which is important for all occupations and even for building empires out of occupations and conquests, uh, this is to to divide the subject population by exploiting its own internal divisions. Breaking up family groups seems to be something of a strategy here, and, and so also does forcing people to relocate within the city, and at the same time also just isolating whole districts, whole neighborhoods in the city. Because Ambergris has just been in the middle of a civil war for an entire generation, people are naturally suspicious of their new neighbors. And you may even discover that your new neighbor killed your father or your wife or something like that. And so it makes it a lot harder for the humans to unite and, and resist. Another tactic that goes hand in hand with this, though, is creating an intermediary group of humans who will actually work for the occupying power. Uh, in this case, the work for the great caps. And there are two levels of this in Finch. First there's there's Finch himself and his colleagues. These are humans who have to work as law enforcement for the gray caps. What motivates them to work for the enemy is fear of being sent to the concentration camps or, or being killed. But it is much more important that the gray caps have intentionally selected people with secrets, people who would suffer if their secrets or identities were known by the human population, people they they've isolated with this knowledge of their pasts. What Vandermeer shows us here then is something really interesting, right? The idea that fear of shame and rejection is much stronger than the fear of death or torture or forced labor. And that's the stick. But there is also a carrot, and that is that the gray caps seem in many ways to be biologically superior to humans. They're harder to kill, they live longer, they have all sorts of really cool physiological abilities. And some humans would like to be like them, would like to have some of those abilities. And so they've signed up to work for the occupying power in exchange for being transformed into mushroom people. Finch calls these people partials, as in partially human, partially gray cap. And these people, in fact, operate as a kind of internal affairs division of the police force. They also provide the camera system that gives the gray caps their surveillance state. Uh, The cameras are actually inside the partials themselves. Each of them has one eye that is a camera that is always recording and always transmitting the images to some kind of data storage where it can be accessed by the, the gray caps anytime they want. There is still one more carrot that we need to talk about here. And that's shrooms. Uh, the gray caps dole out addictive fungal drugs to the ambergrisians uh, There's no system of forced addiction here, right? You don't have to take the drugs, but many do. And of course, this makes them docile and incapable of really offering any kind of resistance. All of these tactics are things that we see in real historical occupations in a variety of combinations, in different combinations. I mean, You know, not the shrimps, I guess. But if we just see that as a particular form of dependency, then it fits just fine. And there are loads of analogs for occupiers and conquerors making a subject population dependent on them for food or medicine or the financial means to acquire those things. In fact, this is a cornerstone of the American occupations of Iraq and Afghanistan following September 11th, for example. Uh, Not to mention a cornerstone of the American occupations of Germany and Japan following the Second World War. Co-opting different indigenous groups is another classic example. In fact, I'd say that we see that far more often than we see creating material dependencies. Finch's position as a detective with a secret past would fit right in with a story set in Vichy France or, or post-war Vienna, for example. Well, the partials are a great analog for the way that Romans brought some factions of local elites into their culture by issuing grants of more rights than the rest of the subject population, but of course never full Roman citizenship, right? making them partial Romans. I don't think I really need to spell out any historical examples of forced labor camps, and the other tools of fear and division here are are fairly obvious in our, our own recent history, I think. But I really love that the way that Vandermeer has gone about creating a complex and compelling portrait of an occupied city, but then, given it his weird fiction skin, I really love the way that that really refreshes a number of the tropes of detective fiction, and also stories about resistance, by making us feel revulsion at things to which we've been a little desensitized, I think. Of course, one of the principal functions of telling stories of occupation and resistance is to get us to think about how we would behave in a similar situation. What would we do if the Russians or the Nazis took over? And it's easy to think that, of course, we would resist. Of course, we would do whatever it takes to defend our homeland and preserve our liberties and our our national self-determination. But we wouldn't. Not really. Almost all of us would cooperate, and many of us would even collaborate in one way or another. But what stories like Finch, or like the TV adaptation of The Man in the High Castle, I'll add, what these stories do is explore why people choose to cooperate, why people choose to collaborate. Sometimes we do this for our own selfish gain, right? That's what the partials are for in this story. And it's interesting that Vandermeer fully dehumanizes and vilifies them. But sometimes we're just trying to protect and feed our children. This is something we see surprisingly little of in Finch, I will say, though romantic relationships provide quite a bit of motivation for people in this story. In fact, mostly what we see is people selling each other out, not necessarily to improve their position, as the partials do, but simply to keep what they have, either material comfort or a place and identity in the human community, something like that. And this is what motivates Finch, who is chiefly interested in two things, pure survival and keeping his secret. And his secret is that his father was a traitor to Ambergris, that his father was a spy for the Caliph, his father was a spy for a foreign power, and that he helped make the civil war between the two trading companies much worse and much longer than it might otherwise have been. In the end, he was actually discovered before the rising, before the gray Caps arrived, and Finch was going to have to live in shame the rest of his life and, and maybe even face some kind of punishment of his own. But the the rising, this occupation by the gray caps, allowed him to reinvent himself. It allowed him to take on a new identity, John Finch, not his real name, uh, and allowed him to go on living. In many ways, this world is better for him than the old one was. And of course, he feels terrible about that because it has come at such a high price for so many others. And this is where I want to bring that bit of Latin back in. In the story, the phrase Bellum Omnium Contra Omnes is simply part of the password system of the resistance— But in our world, this comes from the philosopher Thomas Hobbes, who used it first in his work *De Kiwi, and then in the much more famous Leviathan, uh, some of which you probably read in high school. And what this means in English is the war of everyone against everyone else, or you could do it as everyone in competition with everyone else. And Hobbes thought that this described the natural state of humans, that this described what we were like in a primitive state as just another species of primate out in the savanna. It was the invention of civilization, and in particular the invention of the state, that elevated us from this condition of nature, red in tooth and claw. This condition in which we're just fighting against each other incessantly, without any mercy over limited resources. And then it was these inventions, civilization and the state, that's allowed us to have nice things like safety and enough food and heating and Netflix. And something like this seems to be what Vandermeer has in mind in the backstory to the rising in this civil war between two merchant companies and the people who are dependent on them. Now, earlier, I described this in terms of Renaissance Italy, and this is true. There were several city-states in Northern Italy that succumbed to this type of factional warfare because the central state had eroded and its powers essentially were ceded to private companies engaged in gang wars with each other. I mean, this is literally the exact backdrop of Romeo and Juliet, right? It wasn't good for most people who then were dependent for their material support, that is to say, food, shelter, medical care, among other things, but also dependent for their safety on people who were chiefly interested in exploiting their labor or their purchasing power or both, rather than on creating a flourishing society in which everyone's needs were met without exploitation and without competition. And it didn't really work out very well. I mean, they weren't conquered by mushroom people, but they were almost always conquered by an outside power. In the 12th through the 14th centuries, that was usually Germany. And then in the Renaissance proper, it was usually France. And in this case, conquer isn't really the right word because almost always what happened is that the company that seemed to be losing the war would make some deal with France or with the the Holy Roman Emperor to let their soldiers in and to help overthrow the now dominant company in exchange for being placed in charge as a subordinate now that is not quite what we see here but it does seem to be precisely what the caliph was hoping to be able to do himself and it's why he had finch's father working for him and so this breakdown in civil government has indeed created a situation in which people are looking out for themselves rather than for each other but more importantly it's created a situation in which people feel like success and happiness are a zero-sum game that these are limited resources to be fought over and if you're doing well in life then that is bad for me this is something we can see clearly in the resolution of the story as well, because it is here only at the end that Finch is able to become the type of chivalric hero, the type of paladin that hard-boiled detectives are supposed to be. And this happens only when he starts caring more about other people than about himself, people such as his partner or his girlfriend or even his cat. All right. I did have a third thing here on my outline about world building that I wanted to get to. There are also some other thematic elements that we could certainly talk about here, but I'm already running long. So I'm going to leave those for our conversations on the the forum or the the Clay Temple Media subreddit. So let's move into our final segment here and talk about some strengths and weaknesses of this book. Look, I loved this book. Ambergris is a vivid and hyper real setting. It's a place that I really feel certain that I have been to before, even if it was just in a dream. And I have to say, too, that Vandermeer's fungal culture here, the gray cap culture, is highly imaginative and at times genuinely unsettling. While the post war setup here feels comfortable and familiar, and the combination of these two things is jarring in all the right ways. On top of this, the writing is fantastic. Vandermeer is a real writer's writer. I mean, the first story in City of Saints and Mad Men is a Proustian pastiche, lyrical and layered and textured, not an easy thing to pull off. But here in this book, Vandermeer has moved about as far away from that as you can possibly get, writing a hard-boiled detective story almost entirely in sentence fragments. And in fact, he actually thanks someone in the acknowledgements for helping him master this type of writing. And I do think that he does master it. And he is still able, though, to make the setting come alive, even with just these sentence fragments. And let me read an example. At dusk each day, the Grey Caps lead a workforce from the camp south of the city. All night, the sounds of hammering and construction emerald lights moving like slow stars, screams of injury or punishment. To what purpose? No one knows. While along the lip of the bay, monstrous fungal cathedrals rise under cover of darkness, replacing the old familiar architecture. Skyline like a jagged wound. This paragraph has awesome descriptive elements but in these seven sentences i've just read four of them don't have a verb and one of them is a participle clause that really shouldn't be a complete sentence and i will say that what you will hear is going to be about take five or so because even just the cadence of that without the verbs uh, without conjunctions uh, was really difficult actually to say out loud this is an impressive achievement it is an extraordinary achievement I'd like to spend a minute or two putting Finch next to China Mieville's The City in the City, which we did a few years ago now. Both books are weird fiction detective novels that came out in 2009, so I think it is an exercise (laughs) worth doing. Now, where Vandermeer has created a wholly secondary world that's borrowed elements from ours and then mashed them up in a jarring way, Mieville has built his setting as a master fantasist. He's invented a setting that feels internally consistent, down to the languages, and that also feels like it could really exist in our world. It doesn't feel out of place at all. Both books have taken up political issues in the backdrop of their stories, though this is far more explicit for Mieville, who uh, I think is also imagining, also envisioning some specific historical context. We talked about that in that episode, whereas Vandermeer, I think, is approaching this more sociologically. As for the weird element, Miavel has really tried to imagine how a society would function if it had a dimensional overlap, and how it has functioned for centuries, and then tells us a story about a challenge to that status quo. Vandermeer, on the other hand, tells a story dependent on a catastrophe, on a rupture in the status quo, a rupture that's never going to be fully repaired And I might characterize this by saying that rather than build a weird sandbox for his characters to go play around in, he's drawn a sketch of a weird sandbox, lit it on fire, and then sent his characters to go play in the ashes. And maybe another way to think of it is just to say that Finch is a Salvador Dali painting, while The City in the City is a Pablo Picasso. And I'd especially love to know if there are other books that you think we should put in this group, uh, because I will never get tired of reading books like this. And so I really do hope that you'll you'll come visit the ATOS forum at claytemplemedia.com or come visit our subreddit and let me know about this. Uh, there's also a major theme that I hope you'll talk with me about that I haven't really mentioned at all, actually, that I've left completely out of my review. And this is the question of identity. Almost everyone in this book has an assumed identity, a, a fake persona that they show the world. Finch's partner, White, is infected by fungus spores that are slowly turning him into literally another person, and Finch eventually has to kill him. And near the end of the book, Finch himself ends up with another consciousness in his mind that he gives birth to as a literal, physical being who at first at least completely resembles him. And I just didn't talk about these things at all, but as I said, the whole thing is like a Salvador Dali painting, and these were some of the weirder elements, and I'm sad to have not had time to talk about them but all right, that is going to do it for this episode. I'm Glenn McDormand. You can find me and all our other creative projects at claytemplemedia.com. On Twitter, I'm at GL McDormand, and the network is at Clay Temple Media. Next month, we're going to be reading The Star King by Jack Vance. This is another book that was nominated by a Patreon supporter. But until then, I hope you'll remember that if more of us valued food and cheer and song above hoarded gold, it would be a merrier world. Also, our cities wouldn't be conquered by mushroom people.